changes. I can't wander out here anymore. Didn't you have a, like a little island, right? Yeah. And uh, beautiful chairs, nice chairs. Good to be here. Um, good to carry on in the series of Acts. And it's great to see the uh, group from PLBC. I love PLBC. I've been uh, not the same degree as, as Lincoln, but I've been teaching there for about five years. And uh, great, great students, great school. So I love the worship this morning. We're going to carry on in the series on Acts. And I'd like you to turn, if you have a Bible, to Acts chapter 4. So turn to Acts chapter 4, and we are going to begin in verse 32, okay? Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as each had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a small part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Now after an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you had sold this land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at, her, at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Lord Jesus, this is your word for us, your people, and we pray that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, a heart to receive and the courage to respond to what you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is a difficult passage. And to be honest, I mean, it would be nice it would be nice if, if Acts went straight from 4.37 to 5.12, right? I mean, things have been going well. If you've been following in the book of Acts, you'll know things have been going really well. We've watched with fascination as the church carries on and doing some incredible healing. So there's some really cool things going on. Um, the church is um, healing. The church is 
um, standing up to authorities. Um, they're making converts wherever they speak. And, and people are like, wow, this is amazing. And are, are sharing their property and, and, and offering hospitality. And, and the key words that we come across in this passage are the words that there's great grace. There's great power. And everything's awesome. And then a real buzzkill. Um, something happens. And there's this awkward silence. And we read at the end of our passage, there's great fear. And what happens in this passage seems harsh. It seems puzzling. It seems surprising. And yet maybe it shouldn't surprise us. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at this passage this morning. I think what we find in this passage is we find two pictures of generosity. First thing we come across is a guy named Barnabas. Great name. His name means son of encouragement or son of exhortation. And, and in many ways, Barnabas, I mean, he's a rock star. He's, he's a quintessential servant leader. Uh, whenever we encounter Barnabas, not only in this passage, but in other passages, he's always doing awesome things. He's always giving to others. He's always encouraging people either with what he's giving them or the, the encouragement of his words. He's a good guy. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, we, we find him, what does he do? He sells his field. He sells his field that he owns. He brings all the proceeds from the sale, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And he says, hey, use this money for furthering God's kingdom. And it's a great picture. But then we get the second picture. And the second picture is given by a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And like Barnabas... They sell some property. Like Barnabas, they take money and they place it at the apostles' feet. Unlike Barnabas, they die. What's going on? Again, it's a hard passage. Well, it seems from our passage that there's a limit to Ananias' wholeheartedness. We read in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, he sold a piece of property with his, wife, with his wife's knowledge. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, the key words in all this, these words, kept back. There's a, there's, there's, the, the Greek word to describe kept back is a loaded word. Because the, the word kept back literally means to embezzle or to pilfer. It's the same word that we come across in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in an infamous story in the Old Testament. Do you know what the story is? Do you remember that in Joshua 7, there's a story of Achan? There's another guy, his name's Achan, and who instead of wholeheartedly dedicating the spoils of war to God by destroying them, that's what they're supposed to do, what does he do? He pockets some of the treasure. He keeps back some of the treasure. And in both cases, we find individuals who make choices that jeopardize the community. They jeopardize the new, newly formed people of God. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. In the New Testament, it's, it's, it's the church. And so this is all carried out in front of Peter. And Peter, as you've been exploring, he's not the guy he used to be, is he? 
I mean, Peter's gone through some pretty big transformation from the time he denied Jesus. Peter is a different person. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it'd be interesting, Peter, what would he have been like, um, the kind of before Christ Peter, if he had encountered a, a big shot like um, Ananias? But Peter's a different guy. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he discerns what's going on, and he calls Ananias out on this. But the question that's always on my mind whenever I read this passage, and maybe it's just me, the question is, what did Ananias do that was really that bad? I mean, he gives money. He sells land. He gives, gives money. I mean, that's a good thing. And I think part of our challenge when we read this passage is that there's honestly, there's a lot of details we just don't know. What do we know? Well, what do we know? We know uh, the issue is not so much the money. In fact, we read in verse 4, what, is, what does Peter say? He says, you know what? This, this, land, was, <laughs> this land was your land. Uh, this land was your land. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just went right to a song there. Um, it, it was his land. Peter said that. And he says, you could sell it and you could do whatever you want with the proceeds. So it seems to be that the sin of Ananias was that he presented his gift as if it were the full payment for the property. It seems as if Ananias presented his gift in a way so that he could receive the same kind of spiritual congratulations that Barnabas got. And so the sin in this whole passage is what? The sin is, is, is lying. And Peter essentially asks, he says, how could you do such a thing? How could you, with deliberate, premeditated intent, despise God by publicly lying to him? And we read that Ananias, when he heard what Peter said to him, we, we're not quite sure how this all played out, but he, he fell down, he, he died. We're, the, the passage doesn't actually tell us you know, what the cause was. You know, we know God's involved. Could it have been like you just felt overwhelmed? Could it be that, um, you know, everybody's experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit? Could it be that he felt such an overwhelming sense of guilt, self-judgment, that he died? We don't know. We know that Ananias' wife, Sapphira, she comes on the scene a few hours later. Now, I have to say, I mean, it's not funny because this is serious, but I find one thing that's kind of interesting in this passage is the role of the young adults. The role of the young adults is that they're supposed to carry Ananias' body. So I don't know why it's their job, but they have to carry Ananias' body out. They take the body out, and no sooner had they taken the body out, and then no sooner had they returned that they had to carry another body out, and it just kept saying the young adults, I guess that's their ministry is to carry out dead bodies. I don't know. But Peter, he lays it out to uh, Sapphira, and uh, he gives her a chance. But she continues in the lie. Again, she dies under this self, well, this life-determining, uh, life-terminating judgment. And then right after this, it's interesting, the passage says we, we've gone from great grace, great power, to great what? What does the passage say? Great fear, yeah. Great fear. Fear of the Lord. 
Everyone is struck to the core. And so the question for us this morning is, what are we going to do with this passage? I mean, it's a difficult passage. In our culture, that prizes tolerance as the highest virtue, this story is pretty hard to take. I mean, Peter seems to be a little intolerant. Maybe the, you know, not really tolerating a show of weakness from Ananias. I mean, if you look at it, okay, Ananias, he lied. But, I mean, who doesn't lie? Who doesn't lie? I mean, who hasn't fudged the truth at all times or at times in their life? And so we need to ask the question, what are we going to do with this? Now, before we dive deeper, two things. One is we need to be careful in how much we say in a passage that only has sketchy details. We're not quite sure of all the details. Secondly, we need to be careful not, and this is a challenge with the book of Acts, and I'm not sure if Pastor Derwin has covered this, but it's really important. When you're reading the book of Acts, one of the challenges is to know what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, what is just telling the story of the church? Well, that's really interesting, and that's, you know, we can learn a lot from that. And what is actually teaching that is prescriptive to the church? And so how do we read this passage? Do we take this passage that is descriptive and make it prescriptive and then take an offering? That would be awkward. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what does this passage say to us? Well, I think it says a few things, so let's talk about that. One, I think the passage tells us that holiness can be dangerous for your health. Holiness can be dangerous to your health. In fact, the holiness of God can be very dangerous to your health. Remember in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Uzzah who thought he could, you know, handle the Ark of the Covenant like a UPS parcel. Do you remember him? Holiness of God, as we read all throughout Scripture, can be dangerous to your health. When you and I do evil in the guise of righteousness, that's a dangerous thing. Why? Because God is not some divine, benevolent grandfather sitting on a cloud winking down at our indiscretions. It's often how he's portrayed in our world, but that's not who he is. That's not what Scripture teaches us. What does Scripture teach us about the character of God? He is holy, holy, holy. He is completely other than you and me. Bruce Milne puts it this way. He says, often as we gather for worship and invite God to show himself and to come among us, we may be thankful that he does not answer that prayer in the fullest of terms. Because this is God we're talking about. I remember Eugene Peterson. He was a, a professor of mine at Regent. And Peterson, he would he say, what would drive him crazy? Because he used to be a pastor. What would drive him crazy is that there would be a meeting, an elders meeting or some kind of meeting. And the, and the people in the church would go, hey, uh, Pastor Eugene, why don't you kick things off with a little prayer? And Peterson, he never said that. But he says, every part of him wanted to scream out, there's no such thing as a little prayer. You're calling upon God. So you don't just kind of frame a meeting with, hey, let's talk to God. This is God. Now, one of my favorite quotes is by um, uh, the, uh, the writer Annie Dillard in her book, uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk. This is what she says. It's a great quote. I don't know. Do I have it? Oh, I do. Look at that. 
Look what you guys have. Well done. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? <laughs> She's quite funny. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness for to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Wow, eh? Isn't that a great quote? And it's, it's a reminder, as C.S. Lewis put I mean, the God we worship, he is not a tame lion. And so be very, very careful. I mean, I think we need to be careful. God is not our homeboy. He is not our buddy. He is the living God of the universe. And I think that's one of the things that's going on in this passage that Ananias and Sapphira had not taken into consideration. Secondly, grace is not cheap. You want to know how seriously God takes sin? such as lying, well, look at the cross. If God, in dealing with human sin, must endure the cross, then that tells us that sin is pretty serious. It's costly. The cross also reminds us of the fearful consequences that comes to those who take God lightly, flippantly, or don't give a rip about God in their life. I mean, that's where the cross really is, the crux of the matter. You want to know how seriously our sin, God takes our sin, look to the cross. Now, I wish I could say something, like, well, God, he's fine, he's fine. No, look to the cross. That's how seriously he takes our sin. This is what God's word says. It's not just, this is not me. It's not my idea. This is what God's word says. Thirdly, this passage reminds us that how a church deals with sin will affect its mission. For the church to carry out its, its mission, it needs to be a community of truth. It needs to be, for the church to carry out its mission, there's got to be something about the church that differs it from the Lions Club. Right? There has to be something about the church that sets it apart from the Rotary Club. And if we're a community that tolerates, ignores, sweeps under the carpet and turns a blind eye towards sin, we've lost our prophetic voice in our community. Our mission is compromised. And you see this. You see this all the time. I mean, you see churches that, that cover up lies in their actions where you'll have churches that... Um, where leadership is being involved in sexual abuse and, and, and churches just kind of sweep it under the carpet and, and that it just affects this mission. It kills this mission. Or you see, it, you know, the lies not in their actions but in their beliefs. Now, I hate to pick on this church, but th there's, there's a church in, in Ontario. Um, the, the, the senior pastor of the church is an atheist. Full-on atheist. 
She doesn't believe in God. She's a pastor. She's a senior pastor of this church, Christian church. And she's an atheist. And her, it's her mission to convince her congregation, which isn't very large, there's a shocker, um, <laughs> that God does not exist and it's foolishness to believe in God. Now that will affect your mission. Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, like what, what is your mission as a church? There's a guy named uh, Ajith Fernando. He uh, works in the Youth for Christ. And uh, he talks about Youth for Christ, this organization. It's a very, very important organization. He says um, part of their guidelines, if you want to work for Youth for Christ, he says you need to know in our organization, you guys can make mistakes. He goes, we're okay with mistakes. We're okay if you mess up. That's totally okay. He says in our organization, there's only one thing we will not tolerate. And that's lying. Because lying will kill your community. Lying will kill your mission. Now, we may hear that. We may say, well, but what's a, come on. It's a little carried away. I mean, everybody lies. Well, here's the thing. Lying destroys community. If you're married, what does lying do in your marriage? It'll kill your marriage. I used to work... Um, some of you know, I, I used to work uh, overseas. I, I worked for a company in, in Shanghai um, a long time ago. It was an engineering company. And uh, I'll tell you, man, it was, it was the most complicated job I've ever had. So I'm working in Shanghai in this engineering company. I'm hired by the general manager of the company, uh, this woman. She hires me. Her husband is the owner of the company. She's sending me to Shanghai to be a manager of a department to replace this other person in Shanghai. And I just go in there thinking, well, this is great. I didn't know that she's hiring me to replace the boss's lover, who also is her husband. So she's bringing me in there to push out her husband's lover, who happens to be living in Shanghai. And the entire company, everybody would, would do their work, but at night would be selling stuff on the, like selling stuff on the black market. And everybody, whatever a person would say, they meant something else. And, and I walk into this, and the entire way of relating in the company was a tangled web of lies. And it was toxic. And I, and I participated. It wasn't like I was the, I, I got right into the whole ethos of the company, right? Um, but when you're in a world, how many of you ever worked in a workplace where there's lots of lying going on? Like it really, it really does a number on, on the company's mission or the company's vision. Um, I, I know uh, people who work in uh, some unions and there's lots of lying going on in, in places of backstabbing and it will kill you. Lying matters. Because it pulls us away from the one who says what? I am the truth. And so lying is a big deal, especially in the church. Because Paul reminds us that the church is a temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth. 
Paul says, don't you, don't you realize that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. So you lie in the midst of this temple. What we're learning is that there are consequences. It does a number on, on the mission and the vision of the church. Now, we say this. I, I, I say all this, and, and I would guess most of you would be like, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's right. But it gets, it gets tricky. So let me ask you this. I know you have, we have some leaders here. What if the church suddenly got a major donation from someone who got the money at the, at the racetrack? What would you do if, if, if the church received, you know, all this renovation that's going on is going to be paid for by this person who works construction, but he's in, in the business of building um, um, casinos or strip bars. Gets a little complicated. And I think, <laughs> I mean, the challenge, like, would we confront this donor? If not, why not? I think a lot of churches are reluctant to do this because they're afraid they're going to lose members to my church down the street. No, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of churches are focused on the ABCs of ministry, right? Attendance, building, and cash, right? Sorry. See, I don't think it was an accident that when Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira about their sin, what happens? If you read after this, the church begins to flourish again. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that the church has to be perfect without faults. If it did, I have to leave. Um, the church is, is, is a hospital, right? The church has got a lot of messed up people. But the church needs to be a place of grace and truth. The two have to go together. The church has to be a place where we're honest with each other about our sins. We don't stay stuck in our sins. We need to be a place where we confess to one another, where we experience forgiveness, where we grow in love, the love of Jesus with one another. T.S. Eliot puts it this way. He says, the church must be forever building for us forever decaying from within. And I think that's, that's something we need to remember. The church needs to be a place of grace and truth. The fourth thing that I think we can draw from this passage is that the love of money will always mess you up. Right? I mean, it's a common theme throughout Scripture. That the love of money will mess you up. It's a very serious danger. It's a, oh man, talk about a danger in our culture. C compared to most places in the world, we have money. And if we don't have money, we can pretend we do with credit cards. Right? Now, why is money, why is the love of money, why, why is that so dangerous? Let me hear from you. You're just sitting listening to me. Why? Why is money so dangerous? The love of money so dangerous? Debt, Debt? yeah, yeah. What else? Greed. Right, it could promote greed, yeah. On a spiritual level, what does it do to you? You cannot have two masters. It can become a master, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a false security. Very good. 
One of the things that money does is that it gives us an illusion of control. If I am in control, then I don't really need God. Money gives us an illusion of freedom, right? Freedom 55, baby. Freedom. If I have money, I have free. But that's a false, it's a, it's a lie because freedom needs an object. Freedom to do what? Money won't tell you. Here's the thing. I think money gives us an illusion of immortality. That if I have enough money, I can, and we know this, we know it doesn't really work out, but somehow we think if we have enough money, we can live forever because I can endow that chair or I can, you know, you know Lincoln, you do the, the Lincoln wing of the hillside and it'll be, have your name on it. And, 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 and then it's a way that we can kind of live forever, but, but we don't. Money distracts us from our mission and purpose. What is the chief end of man? To make as much money as we can? Or to glorify God and enjoy him forever? But sometimes money is a determining factor. I don't know if I shared this with you before, but I remember there was a guy in our church who was um, was moving. And he's moving up north. And uh, I said, oh, hey, you got a new job? He goes, yeah, do I ever have a good job? He goes, they're paying me twice what I was making here. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. And, you know, not only that, but they give me a company car. I got a nice office. And there's this, this, and this. And I'm just, it's awesome. What a, what a great opportunity. I said, cool. I said, your whole family's going? Yeah, we're all going up there. I said, what are the churches like up there? Well, I don't know. I said, are there any churches in the place where you're going? I don't know. I said, so you're taking your entire family away from this community of faith that you're part of, and the determining factor for this mission shift of your life is how much money you're going to be making up north without any taking into any consideration about community, about uh, churches, or anything like that. No, I'm not against, you know, getting promotions and things like that. But, but is, what is the determining factor of the decisions you make? Is it how much money you're going to make? Or is it your life in Christ? Right? I think this love of money was a problem in the book of Acts and it's a problem in the church today. That's why we say that the cost of, one of the costs of discipleship, one of the ways we, we need to live is to, is to freely give, is to have open hands. And one of my favorite stories is C.S. Lewis. Oh, it's mandatory that I quote Lewis. Um, Lewis is uh, heading to a pub with his brother. And uh, there's a guy begging on the side of the street. And uh, Lewis takes his money, takes all of his money, just gives it to this guy on the side of the street. And his brother admonishes him and says, what are you doing? Why do you give him that money? He's just going to use it for, for drink. And Lewis said, well, that's what I was going to use it for, too. Um, <laughs> but he's just open hands, right? Okay, here's the last point. The last thing I think we could walk away with is this, that it is dangerous for you and I to live before an audience of many. It seems for Ananias and Sapphira that their deep desire 
was to receive the same kind of accolade, the same kind of respect, the same kind of admiration that Barnabas got. So what do they do? They mimicked his style but had no substance. Tell me that's not an issue in our world today. Style without substance. We have separated two things that always belong together, substance and style. And we live in a world that really values style over substance. And, and you see this. <laughs> I mean, not to pick on celebrities, but they're so easy to pick on. Um, in the whole cult of celebrity, I mean, who are the heroes in our world today? Our celebrities. What a celebrity says, we, we, we listen to. It used to be, you know, others. But now celebrities is where all of our attention is. It used to be that you were famous for something you did, but now we live in a world where you're famous for simply being famous. And I may be missing something, but I'm not sure what skill set Kim Kardashian brings to the table. Um, I think we live in a culture where we want two things so badly. Here's the two things that we want. We want to be famous, and we don't want to be anonymous. We want to be famous, and we don't want to be anonymous. There's a line from the show Glee. One of the characters says, nowadays, being anonymous is worse than being poor. But in our desire to be known, we sometimes will present a style that, mat that does not match our substance. And I think that's what you get with Ananias and Sapphira. And I think that's the danger that we, we face today. Now, here's the challenge. Today... Unlike any other day, you and I can almost pull it off. We can almost be famous. Through the use of social media, you can actually create a platform where many, many, many people will pay attention to what you say. You really can pull it off. You can, you can post that video that goes viral. And you can have that, that moment of, 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 being, of, of fame. And what I see happening in our world today is this almost this incessant desire to be known. And so we will we'll post that post that everyone likes, that video that goes viral, that picture that everyone will share. But here's the thing. When you and I live our lives before an audience of many, the temptation to lie will grow. Right? Because you're going to be so focused on presenting that persona that you think people want to see that before you know it, and I've seen this happen, I've seen this happen so many times, where you, you get to the point where honestly you have no idea who you are. You're so busy presenting different personas to different people, either through, <laughs> through social media or through different means, before you know you have no idea who you are. You're a series of lies. Because you've been living your life before an audience of many. The call of the Christian life is to what? Is to live our lives in complete transparency before an audience of one. Before God, we don't need to hide our helplessness. Before God, we don't need to hide our inadequacies. Before God, we do not need to pretend that we're someone we're not because we have the cross, right? 
When you live your life before an audience of one, you can live in freedom and in truth. Now, I know that personally. I know that. I mean, that's something that I've struggled with a lot in my life. When I was uh, living and working in Shanghai, my whole life was a lie. I was constantly presenting a different persona to different people in order to get favor, in order to move up the corporate ladder. I mean, I lived in that. And, and it is a scary place when you actually don't know who you are. And I'd also say this. For pastors, this is an occupational hazard, Right? Pastors have so many masks because they, they want to be relational to so many people. But I've seen this so many times that pastors get to the point where they don't know who they are. The truth of the matter is that God is a God of truth. He created you and he loves you. And that's a game changer. If you know that you are deeply, deeply loved by actually the only one who really matters, doesn't that make a difference? The problem is, is do you believe it? Many of you believe it up here or you're told, yeah, God loves me. But do you really believe it? If you really believe that the, the living God of the universe loves you by name, he knows you in all your details. If you really got that, it's a game changer. And it actually brings you into a, to a really cool state. And there's, there's this old term from a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. He describes being in a state of holy indifference. Isn't that cool? Holy indifference. Indifference is, I don't care what anybody thinks. That's not what we're saying. It's holy indifference, meaning, you know what? God genuinely loves me. He loves me by name. He, he loves everything about me. He saved me. He reconciled me to himself through Jesus Christ. I can call the living God of the universe Father. I'm his adopted son. He's given me his very presence because of that, I actually don't care what you think about me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's so much freedom in that. Don't you long for that? I long because, because when you're there, and I, I get glimpses of that every now and then. I'm not always there. Uh, yeah, I, I long to be there more often. But when you get that, when you get to the place where you really know how much Jesus loves you, Oh, it sets you free. Because who cares what other people think? You don't care. You still love each other and you, you, you care for people, but I, I really, you don't care what people think of you. And that sets you free. So lying will kill a community. It killed Ananias and Sapphira. We need to be a community of grace and truth because the truth will set you free. All right. Well, let's pray.